0: Well, turn your Bibles, if you will, to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 9, where we'll begin reading in verse 24. Read into chapter 10, verse 12. 1 Corinthians, chapter 9, verse 24, to chapter 10, verse 12. I'll bring out the New King James Version. This is my custom. God's Word says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it, and everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the sp- same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased. For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things become our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as some of them. As is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, all these things happen to them as examples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. This morning, we are going to continue our study, and let's just see how well you've been paying attention. I heard that uh, Kelly needed one more exam in her life, so here we go. Knowledge does what, class? puffs up what does love do see how simple that was but it was filling the blank and you did a great job knowledge puffs up but love edifies and that has been the theme since first corinthians chapter 8 <clears throat> verse 1 it is the principle that paul is hammering home over and over and over again through chapter 8 chapter 9, chapter 10. It's going to be pressed on even further. Uh, it's going to be uh, reach its pinnacle, if you will, when we get to chapter 13 of First Corinthians, where Paul says, the most excellent way for the Christian to minister is in love. It is higher than any other uh, quality of ministry or any other uh, gift or of any other nature of ministry is that we do it in love. That it is the enduring aspect of ministry and it is there that I want to really focus our attention this morning in First Corinthians chapter 9. With the Olympics going on, this passage um, was uh, very appropriate. Our passage this morning is about running a race. And about the preparation to run that race. We touched on it last week. We are going to complete it and press into chapter 10 this week. Um, And we have been watching the culmination of a body of people, a group of people who have devoted their lives to the pursuit of winning an event, a race if you think they've just devoted a few hours now and then in their day, they just got up a little earlier and spent 15 minutes in training and just did the things that you and I do, uh, you're mistaken. They have truly devoted their lives to the acquisition of a little hunk of metal and the accolades of being the best at something or the second best or third best at something. Or simply being their country's best going into it, let, perhaps not the world's. We look at the extent to which their pursuit has devoured their life, and it has. Some have asked uh, my own kids have asked, "Do these 15-year-olds and 16-year-olds getting gold medals? Do they go to school?" <laughs> not much. They're training. And, and uh, when my young adults and teens want to know, boy, wouldn't it be great to be in the Olympics? I said, if you're prepared to give your life to it, sure. But it has to become your life. In the, uh, We were watching Chariots of Fire just in preparation since we don't have the TV to watch the Olympics. We watched Chariots of Fire and there was a moment when Eric Little had to come to his sister and and really to his family and to his ministry and just confess, I can't do it both. I can't prepare for the Olympics and give myself to the ministry. So I'm going to do this Olympics thing and then I'm going to give my entire life to the ministry, which is what he did. And it's a very powerful statement and one that we need to recognize is going on. So today... We are going to look at giving your life to something. Last week we looked at the motivation. That Paul gives multiple motivations. Why do we serve in love? And why do I temper myself? Why am I willing to sacrifice my rights? And remember that we looked at that. Do I have these rights in Christ? He gave it from his own, the example of his own life. He looked at the issue at hand about, well, you know meat offered to idols doesn 't mean anything, and so I can eat it without i 'm not worshiping the idol by eating the meat that had been offered to it, but we sacrifice that right for concern over the weaker brother to whom it is a problem and so we do not rate our righteousness based upon our liberty, but rather based upon our love for one another that I have such love for the law, such love for um, the weakest among us, that I uh, bring my life into the boundaries that my love for them produces. I don't want them to fall. I don't want them to, to start questioning their own salvation or what it means to be a Christian. And so I will bind myself to those, even though I am at Freedom in Christ, not to have to do that. Paul says, I do it nonetheless. And he gives us the motivation why he himself binds up his ministry in pursuing none of the rights that are his as a minister of the gospel. That as an apostle, he has these rights and authorities and he surrenders them all. He says in verse 15, I've used none of these things and I don't want any of these things done for me. Why? Well, he tells us why. He doesn't want to abuse his authority. He wants to be a partaker of the gospel with his people. He does not want to become disqualified. He does not want to fall. He wants to edify others. And he wants many others to be saved. We looked at those last week. We also not only looked at the motivation, we also looked at the manner, I'm sorry, not the manner, but the mechanism of it. That we are bound to commit ourselves to reaching others where they are. That our love for them demands us that we not become like them in the sense of participating in their sin, but rather that we are engaging ourselves in reaching them because their need is our greatest concern. Not my comfort or my interests, but rather to reach them. And so I go to them who are the Jewish people. He says, I go to them, I become as a Jew. Do not come to them condemning them for who they are and what they believe, but I rather go to them recognizing their great need. Why? So that I can win them. Why do I go to those without the law? Not that I go out there in a lawless living, but I go out there that I might win those who are without law. I go to the weak that I might win them. So we found a mechanism by which we accomplish this job of showing love. That we go out to them. We do not say, here are our standards, and when you meet those, you can come into church, or I'll start sharing the gospel once you get these things right in your life. I go out there and we engage sinners and they are sinners. We don't go out there and say to the sinners, when you get rid of that homosexuality in your life, then I'll share the gospel with you. Wrong. There is no prerequisite in terms of activity the men must do before they repent and turn to Christ. Godly sorrow brings repentance. We do not demand of you that you uh, fit our bill. Once you are sober, now we can share with you the Gospel. But Or that once you have reached a 100 days of sobriety, now we're ready for the Gospel to go out there. Oh, if that were the case, some of you wouldn't be here. We do not go out there with our standards and say, meet these and then... Not only in terms of coming into church and oh, you're not wearing the right clothes, you're not carrying the right Bible, your not your hair isn't right, your skin isn't right anymore. You have to, um, you know, you, you just go home and change and then come back. And I've heard of churches doing that. Um, but rather, even in a, not only in that level, are we talking about accepting people where they are at as sinners that need a savior, but as we go out to them that we view them with true, genuine Christian love. This is my desire to reach with the gospel. So we looked at the motivation for sacrificial, loving service that edifies. We looked at the mechanism and now we want to look at the manner. And these are going to be adverbs so we're going to we've looked at the mechanism we're going to go and reach them but how Um, certainly we're going to go reach them we're going to go out there and be like them and that part of the how is in the mechanism but how are we going to do the mechanism and paul begins to develop this idea of the manner in which that we are going to go out and do this and we have a great description of it as a race We are going to run. That means that we are going to discipline ourselves and our love for the world and for one another and for our weaker brethren, our love that will edify, will build them up instead of puff up ourselves, instead of just inflating ourselves, of building something enduring, must be disciplined. And this he tries to communicate in this picture that you're going to discipline yourself. That even though your gut instinct might be against that individual or their activity, even though you may be disgusted in yourself and your sensitivity to sin at what is being is going on and what is being said in those places and and communicated by not only their words but their actions, and our first instinct is to condemn that. We're going to discipline ourselves, and I'm going to reach out to that person, not by saying that what they're doing is okay, but by communicating in such a manner that I can bring them to Christ. So what does discipline love look like? What does it mean to run this race called edifying love? Well, I have a few thoughts derived out of his example here and pressing into chapter 10. We find that disciplined love endures. We run in such a way to obtain the prize. And no one obtains a prize who can't endure the race. We don't stop partway through and say after we're out here running a mile race and I am leading after the first lap and I stop and say, I'll take my prize now. I'm in the lead. At the state track meet last spring, we had a young man who was qualified out of our district, out of Highland, qualified. and Was that the two mile? 3,200. He knew he had no chance of winning it. He knew it. But, it's state. Why not just go out there and run? And he led for the first, oh, I don't know, three quarters of a mile a mile. I mean, he was way out there and everyone was like, where did this guy, kid, come from? Um, well, he's what, running way over his head. He knew it. Everyone knew it. And right about that three quarter of a mile mark, he started to fade badly. And I fear that for many of us in our Christian service, that's what our race looks like. But then you have the guys that are the real contenders who are just let, let the rabbit go and they're going to run their race. They know the pace it takes to run the whole race and get the prize. They understand the endurance and they have built themselves up for the enduring quality it must be if you're going to receive the prize or gain the prize. And so we find that a truly disciplined service that is loving and has a purpose to edify the body of Christ must be enduring. No matter what obstacles I confront, no matter how long it is required of me to pray for that person, to love them, um, it might be decades before they come to Christ, but I will love them. I'll minister them and nurture them along and feed them the gospel by my witness of my life, by by my... attitude towards everything around me by the words that come forth from me. I will love them and seek to reach them. Paul wasn't going to just reach the Jews for a week and now I'm going to go reach the Gentiles for a week. Then I'm going to go reach the... No, there was an enduring nature to his loving ministry. Not only do we find endurance, we find the companion to endurance. And that is patience. Do not throw up my hands at some point, and I fear that many pastors do in their ministry at one at some point throw up their hands and just say, "I give up they're just i, I just it's hitting my head against a rock, trying to minister to this person or to these people and we throw up our hands and we uh, it's never our fault, of course it's just that these people are just too hard and and whenever I get to that point, and sometimes in my ministry, I like to go back and read guys like Moses who had that problem. These people, Lord, that you put my over, they've got huge problems. And then God, whenever He's frustrated with Israel, says, Moses, those people of yours. And there are times that I go to God and say, Lord, this church of yours. And God looks down and says, Kirk, those people of yours. We recognize that patience and we look to God for that example that as we endure that it requires of us that willingness to realize that some things in some people can't be accomplished in what we would consider a reasonable amount of time. That what we see, one person growing in the Lord at this terrific rate and, and and we we excited about their desire to serve God, to serve others, to grow in the in their faith and their knowledge of the Son, Jesus Christ. Um, and then we look at another person and we go, why aren't you growing like that person? Why don't you have that interest? And we lose patience with this person because we're so excited to participate in it with this one. But to run... A race that pleases God requires us to endure and enduring love is patient as we will see when we study 1 Corinthians 13. And that's why I've derived many of these. Thirdly, born right out of verse 25, anyone who competes for the prize is temperate In all things, we find there's the discipline. Verse 26, I'm sorry. Therefore, I run thus not with uncertainty. Thus, I fight not as one who beats the air. And We have the twins of endurance and patience there in verse 25. I'm going to be temperate all things. I'm going to strive after it. I'm going to keep running this race. Then we come to the next verse and we find another twin. We have confidence. We do so with a confidence. We sacrifice, um, not, not wondering if God is interested or involved. Paul does not go out there and run with uncertainty, he says. I'm not just beating the air. I'm not just wasting my time. I have confidence that there is substantial accomplishment in this kind of love for others. I have a confidence about what I'm doing. And its twin is faith. That just as we endure because of patience, we are, have confidence in our ministry and in our sacrifice because of our faith. That our trust is not in ourselves but in Christ that He'll do this work in others. And thus, my part, my energy, my sacrifice, my love that I put into the equation of the totality of God's ministering to those people and to that person, um, I can do so with confidence. Because I know that while God begins something, He completes it. And that this element that I add to this equation, this, this ingredient that I put into uh, His recipe is His. And my responsibility in serving God is to make sure that the ingredient that I add into the recipe of ministry in a church or in the world is the very best that I can give Him. That this ingredient is pure. That this element is right. And so we have this confidence that we are not engaged in a useless activity. There are some things I do that sometimes I wake up in a cold sweat saying, am I wasting my time with that? Never in the ministry have I ever found myself doing that. There are other times, other things, that I'm like, what am I doing? But when it comes to ministry of sacrificial, disciplined love that seeks to edify others, we should have a full confidence that is driven by our faith, not in ourselves or in our sacrifice, but in the One who is Lord over all. It may seem to be an opposite, but my next one is actually born out of that confidence. And that is fear. We see these as opposites. Confidence and fear are opposites, but not in Paul's development here. He runs with confidence. He runs and fights with certainty. He knows that he is doing Worthwhile work. Enduring work. Something that will last. And so he does it by faith. Not looking at today. Not looking at this week. Not looking at this month. But looking into eternity. You might say, well, confidence is a lack of fear. No. Confidence is a certainty of what you're accomplishing. But Paul was... Also, in his disciplined love, showing godly fear. That to fail would have long-range ramifications. Not only upon those to whom he is ministering, but himself as well. That if I do not do this for God, what am I for God? We sang a song. Living for Jesus If you aren't doing that, what, who are you living for? And how is that going to disqualify your life from God 's plan for you? You see the twin to fear is righteousness, and we enduring love must be righteous. And our righteousness is not about participating in a single event, but it is loving in a godly way. When we understand God's righteousness, we understand the place that fear has in our service. We also often talk about the fear of the Lord, and we want to rule out uh, frightenness and just make fear awe of God, and I think we do an injustice to the Word. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all, John tells us, and that's who you're serving. How dare we serve Him superficially when He is the one we're serving of that nature, that we serve that nature of God. So we serve him. We seek to do it in righteousness for fear that we might be disqualified from the ministry by God himself. And those that want to exercise their rights for their own benefit or their own liberty, to their own arrogance, should serve in fear. That would humble them, and that is our last point of what disciplined love looks like. What is the manner of it? And that is that it should be, we should love others with humility. And we see it written all over here as Paul wants to be a partaker of the Gospel. He doesn't want to be disqualified. He doesn't want to abuse his authority. He wants to reach others. We find that his entire focus is off of himself and on everyone else. That any view towards himself is one of fearful expectation that I don't measure up. And I take these words as honest and they mean something to me. I consider my ministry against Paul's and it's fearful. It strikes fear in my heart, these kinds of passages. And we are about to enter into perhaps one of the most frightening passages of scripture there are in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And it's prefaced by Paul's own declaration that his concern was that he be disqualified, that he not be a partaker of the gospel, that he abuses his authority. And I look at Paul and I look at my life and I'm like, if he was afraid of that, why am I not afraid of that? Why are we so smug? in our Christianity, that we're doing everything just right and just so. When Paul wasn't, And genuine, disciplined love that's enduring and patient, confident and full of faith, fearful and righteous and full of humility is not smug. It is always considering how we might better serve our Lord. And so to drive us out of smug love, Paul is going to give us an example from the Old Testament. And it is very frightening. I want you to see a little three-letter word that is huge in chapter 10. You should be aware that all Our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized, all ate, all drank. They were all delivered. We're not talking about the Egyptians that were going to be drowned. We're talking about all the people who crossed that Red Sea on dry ground and were delivered. They were guarded by a fiery tower behind them from the Egyptian chariots while they crossed. They were guided across by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire by night. They passed through the sea. They all experienced God's deliverance. first thing we find out is they were all delivered. They all went under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. Secondly, we find out that they were all baptized into Moses. That is, they were all identified as God's people. They were Israel. Hear, O Israel. They were all identified. They were a mixed multitude. Some were Egyptians. Yes, we know that. The Bible says that later on, they were a mixed multitude that anyone who wanted to participate and become part of Israel simply had to put the blood on their doorposts and lintels of their home. And when the the... the agent of death came through that they would be delivered. And everyone who had that on their home were kicked out of Egypt. They were all identified. They were all baptized into the people of God. They all went through that ritual spiritually. So we're talking about all those delivered, all those identified as God's people. All were partakers of God's grace. They ate spiritual food and they drank spiritual drink. And Paul says that drink they drank was Christ. They participated. They are partakers of God's provision, of God's grace, of God's goodness. They consumed it. Here we have a delivered people an identified people and partakers of God's grace and we would conclude, stop right here, right now. What a glorious church! Right? That's what we would all conclude. What a glorious church! Look at what we've experienced. We've experienced God's deliverance. We've experienced identification with Him. We're not afraid to call ourselves that. There's the blood on the door. I've experienced this. I've gone through the Red Sea and I'm on the other side now. Here I am. And I'm eating manna. Not bread from heaven, by the way. And I'm drinking out of a rock. I'm partaking of this wonderful provision of God. Then I'm given... 40 days of testing where I lose my leader and Moses is up on the mountain communing with God, receiving instruction and plans for the temple, tabernacle. We're seeing incredible things. We, we can know what's happening up there. There's a, the mountain's black. cloud of God's glory has enveloped it. We've all been delivered. We've all identified ourselves as the people of God. We've all been partakers of His spiritual food and water. And then this verse that makes me shudder. But with most of them, God was not well pleased. Okay, Christian. You've been delivered? Been identified with God's people? Been baptized? I've been saved and baptized. Partaking of God's goodness? Consuming of His, of the water and the food of God spiritually? I've got the knowledge. I know. God's Word. I know the Bible stories. I have memorized verses. I've You've been partaking. Yep, you've been eating and drinking. But for the church, that's not the question anymore. When I go to the world, that's my question. Are you a believer? Have you been delivered by God from sin and slavery to sin and death? Have you been delivered? When I deal with Brand new Christians. Yeah, I ask them, are you going to identify yourself with your deliverer? Are you going to enter into the waters of baptism in that watery grave? Are you going to participate there and identify yourself with Christ? And yes, I go to the new Christian and I say, are you participating in God's Word and with His people and partaking of the grace of God and growing in your faith and knowledge of of His Son, Jesus Christ? Sure. But once we get into the camp. And here we are. And I I think I told somebody that church isn't for reaching the lost. It was last Sunday. It's really for the believers. Here we are in the camp. And you can sit here and say, I've been delivered, I've been baptized, and I've been partaking of God's grace. But that's not the question anymore. question now is, do you please Him? Is God pleased with you? I'm not going to water these words down. I don't think I have the right to do that. God slaughtered many. A whole generation of Israel died, save two men. Died in the wilderness, and the wilderness is a picture of Really, in the Old Testament, wilderness of sin. Well, I got saved. I got baptized. I've read my Bible and I've gone to church a few times enough to know what I am and what God's done for me. Now, look at these five disastrous deeds that cause Israel to deserve God's displeasure. Those are all D's, by the way. I worked at that. Five disastrous deeds deserving of God's displeasure. Here we go. They lusted after evil things. Verse 6, now, these things become our example to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. They simply wanted evil things. What makes something evil? Well, we're going to find out here in a little bit as he develops this a little bit more. And you might say, well, this is an umbrella thing over it. But I think it's more substantial than that. Uh, they just won it after Egypt. And if you hear what Israel says, and while well, we're going to talk about the idolatry, we're going to talk about the immorality, we're going to talk about the complaining, we're going to talk about these other things... Um, but I want you to remember Israel's first words, and that is, Oh, for the leeks and the garlics of Egypt. Do you remember that? Oh, back when life was so much easier and we had all that food and the variety of food, and they complained against God's provision because they wanted what the Egyptians had in the variety of their diet. Can you believe it? think back to their complaining against God, think back to their rebellion, and tell me it doesn't start off by desiring after the stuff the Egyptians had. And tell me that that isn't the church today. That we are sitting here in church thinking about all the stuff I want that the world has. That I go to the media and they are filling my mind with, you want this, I want that. This is deserving of God's displeasure. What makes it evil? First of all, leeks and garlics are not evil. <laughs> okay? And so certainly it's tied into the, the discontentment that we find there. But they simply wanted after things that God had delivered them from and that they had God's direct provision in manna, but that wasn't good enough. He gave them meat. That wasn't good enough. Gave them water from the rock. That wasn't good enough. Why? Because it wasn't what the Egyptians had. And tell me, you people who are redeemed, baptized, and partaking of God's goodness day after day, that you aren't lusting after the evil things of this world. That that doesn't characterize our being. And let me share with you, that's frightening to me. Because the displeasure of God disqualifies me. When I fall under the displeasure of God, I'm DQ'd from the race. They say, Pastor, what are you trying to say? You're talking about being DQ'd from the ministry? No, I'm talking about being DQ'd from the race. And I take very seriously the passages of Scripture that tell us and warn us over and over again with the strongest words that are out there That you can be dequeued from the race. Even though you have staked a claim to deliverance. Even though you have been baptized. Even though you have been partakers of God's goodness. Even though you have tasted of the heavenly gift, Hebrews says, to turn away brings condemnation. This verse, verse 5, ranks right up there with Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus says, I don't know who you are. It ranks right up there with some of the passages out of Hebrews that send shivers up my spine over whether how many of us are really going to be seen together in heaven. When we lust after the evil things of this world, why don't we hunger and thirst after righteousness? Because that builds ministerial love. The love of God is the hunger and thirst after righteousness. Not to lust after the evil things of this world. Number two, the second disastrous deed deserving of God's displeasure is in verse 7, they became idolaters. See, they didn't just want after it. Eventually, they come to worship it. And you guys all smile when I say, I, God, but I mean it in the most sincerest sense. I see it devouring our lives. That it becomes more precious to us than people. And let me share with you, if it has become more precious to you than people, it is more precious to you than God. Because God has called you to minister to people. I can do it through my eye, God. Do not become idolaters as some of them were. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose to play. They started lusting after the things of Egypt and so they went and built a thing out of, from Egypt, a golden calf. And we all know what happened as a result of that. And in case you don't, Paul reminds you, they were destroyed. God Displeasure does not mean he 's not going to bless you in this life and help you to win Olympic gold god 's displeasure means you are decued from the event called the gospel. and yes, I believe in first John chapter five verse twelve that we may know that we have eternal life. I also believe first John chapter one one through chapter five eleven. It says if, 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 if. And our question we need to come to our Christian walk with is all those ifs, not claiming that verse without its conditional clauses that preface it. We are idolaters. But our entire conversation and thinking our, is, dura, is built around entertainment. Look at it in verse 7. That people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. What does that sound like to you but entertainment? The third disastrous deed deserving of God's displeasure was sexual immorality. We don't call it that much anymore. They committed sexual immorality. That was where it leads to. And whatever you want to say, um, I've been harassing people about the Olympics for the last week and asking them why. And why men gymnasts have pants and girl gymnasts have underwear. You ever wonder about that? Because sex sells. That's what our society is about. Men can compete in these baggy clothes and seem to be fine playing volleyball and the girls need bikinis. Why? Because our environment, our culture, draws us to sexual immorality. You cannot be for any length of time within earshot and eyeshot of our media today without being sold sex. And God is displeased. And that displeasure disqualifies us. The fourth disastrous deed deserving of God's displeasure listed for us here, is that we tempt Christ. As some of them also tempted Him. Is an interesting word of testing of, of that whole idea of if you're God, do this when we say. And i got to tell you, some of the prayers I've been reading on Facebook sound an awful lot like that. If you're God, do this for me when I say. And I am fearful that much of our praying starts to sound like that. They tempted Christ. That is, they tempted God by trying to question His goodness. And we have studied this before, that fundamentally our world today in their examination of Christianity, is saying the same lie that Satan said in the garden, and that is, God isn't good. And we come to God and say, you haven't been good enough to me lately. What have you done for me lately? And that is our attitude towards God. I can hear it in the praying. That somehow, we are deserving of more from God than what we have received already is not sufficient. And so we test Him. And this is what Israel did back in Exodus and Numbers. They, they tested God and the result was that they were destroyed by serpents until they cried out and, and Moses puts a serpent on a stick and raises it up and the only way they could be delivered was if they looked to live. Oh, that we would realize that our relationship with God It's not about Him proving Himself to us. It's about our life. That we look to Him and He gives us life. And somehow He has to prove His love for us more and more by filling our bank account, by getting us a a boat, or for getting a a better vacation, or for solving every problem in your life that you created. Oh no. Let us not tempt Christ. And then the fifth... Disastrous deed deserving of God's displeasure that Israel participated in was complaining. And they were destroyed. Whoa, complaining is on the top five? Yeah. It disqualifies us. Not just from ministry, but from God's pleasure. We could spend a lot of time here But I want to jump down to verse 12 to finish off. I've had a lot of content here today. Verse 12 is the warning driven out of verse 5. You think you're standing because you've been delivered, because you've been baptized, because you've partaken of God's grace? Watch out. Take heed means watch out. You might be fallen. You might be walking in God's displeasure all the while convincing yourself you're right with God because you got these boxes checked. All of Israel had those boxes checked. Most of Israel fell under God's displeasure. Most Christ didn't say a few are going to come to me and say, Lord, Lord, and I'm going to say I never knew you. It says many are going to come to me on that day. So the warning is one for us to watch out. And so when we go back to that theme verse... Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. We want to make sure that we are exercising disciplined love with one another. We're going to revisit this whole thing much more extensively when we get to chapter 13. But we want to be exercising disciplined love to secure our stand. Not based upon checking off boxes from the past, but because today, today, This is not in my life. These disastrous deeds, of God's displeasure aren't there. I have worked and I will continue to commit myself to extract these out of my living that I might seek to please God. Well, how do I do that? I want to minister out of love and edify others and not serve myself. Fundamentally, Satan's temptation in the garden was one of watch out for yourself. God isn't good. You've got to watch out for yourself. And it's a lie that's still being proposed today. God isn't good. You watch out for yourself. Grab all the gusto you can in life for yourself. No one's going to do it for you. The problem is while you're grabbing, what you're grabbing is death. For Christ has already acquired life for you. He's already conquered sin and death. Brethren, you think you stand because you've been delivered, because you've been baptized, because you've been partaking of God's spiritual food. Watch out. And that means that I'm going to pay attention to my life. I'm going to make sure that not only these five aren't there, but none of the things that we know displease God are in my life. And so I'm going to focus my life on not how close to the fence I can get or how balanced on the fence I can be walking this line between the world and God. But rather, I'm going to do what Philippians tells us to and meditate and move myself towards what is excellent. What is above reproach. What is good. What is loving. These things I'm going to meditate on. That I might never become disqualified. And yes, I believe that it is possible to walk as Paul walked. But to get to that point needs to have some true fear of God in us. We might take these statements for their face value and watch out lest we become queued in the race called the gospel. Let's pray.